the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today we're talking about waiting. When I say we're talking, I mean I'm talking. <laughs> but I'm not using the royal we. What I'm doing is acknowledging that as I am talking to you, you are talking to yourself. You are listening to the Holy Spirit. And in that, you are carrying on a rich inner dialogue as you wait for me to stop. <laughs> Waiting, then, is what you do when someone else is doing the doing. When your life, or at least your time, is in someone else's hands. When there is nothing you can do, even though something may very much need to be done. Waiting can vary, though. There's waiting and there's waiting. It's qualitative and quantitative. And time can seem to move more slowly or more quickly, quantitatively speaking, depending on the quality of the thing that you're waiting for and your relationship to it. Are you awaiting it with eager expectation or with anxious dread? And that may be subjective. It may be entirely up to you. And the same outcome may arouse very different inner states in very different people. The people gathered in the temple that we meet today in the gospel are waiting for one thing, whether they know it or not. They are waiting for God. They are waiting for Israel's God, who is the one true God of the whole wide world, to return to earth physically, not just anywhere on earth, but the temple specifically right about where they are waiting. He's been gone for a long while, too long, and they have not done well in his absence. But the reason for his absence, their treason, not these particular people, their rebellion against him, is the same reason that he left initially, hundreds of years before, and the reason he desists in returning. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, writes the last prophet, Malachi. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, as the Christians have them, ends actually on this note of hope. But that note is given centuries before this day in the temple, and they're still waiting. Now, we recognize that a God who has put himself into exile over the rebellion of his people is exercising mercy. If we'd found him somewhere back in Joshua, he would have just opened the earth and swallowed them all up or sent various plagues upon them. But more and more through the scriptures, this is a systematic pattern which makes it so risky to cut and paste in scripture because scripture is dynamic. It shows us a dynamic change of God. We call it progressive revelation and a number of other things. God is a bit of a moving target, even though he is in himself always the same. Israel's God does not act that way anymore. He does not swallow up people. Leaving aside Ananias and Sapphira, for whom we can maybe discuss, he desists and he gives his human family 
enough rope to hang themselves, but enough time to get themselves out of their troubles as well. The best way they can get themselves out is to ask him for help, which they are rather slow to do, just as we are slow to do today. It's not just the world that does the world's things in the world's way. It's the church that insists on trying to do God's work in the world's way. And that's the perennial problem right there. It haunts us to this moment. God, in other words, has to find slower and more lingering ways of purifying his people. So he sends the Romans instead, last but not least of a series of oppressors who are sent to purify Israel or Judah, which is all that's left of the great empire established by Saul, David, and Solomon, to purify it by afflicting it, and in affliction to bring the people back to their knees, not just crying out in mercy, but hopefully crying out in prayer to their last love, their spurned lover who has pursued them as a jilted husband with his offer of mercy. But this true God wishes to woo them away from serving temporal masters who deal with them in temporal or secular ways. Now, God will work through anyone he chooses. Uh, so we are increasingly being told these days. But we should not forget that that works when that person is the person of God's own choosing, God's anointing, not ours as a matter of some convenience. That's where then, as now, there is often room for disagreement. Regardless, one thing people are united in then and now, is a desire for change. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God, and our hands or feet are restless until they are about doing God's business. In the meantime, many then, as now, have simply learned to make the best of a bad job and lower their expectations of what God wants and how much God can do and stop waiting for something better and make the best of what they have, even if the best would have been the worst in other times. So we have these dear saints waiting in the temple for God to return. They are praying and they are fasting, which is already a move in the right direction. This is their lucky day, for God has finally returned, even though they do not know it, and he will go into their presence and out of it without them recognizing what has happened. They think maybe he's somebody else, this child, God's messenger, God's agent, God's prophet, and they are looking for somebody else. They're not looking for God himself to come back. They yearn for it, but they've agreed to settle for God's messenger, preferably well-armed and with a very strong military-industrial complex to back him up. But this child is there to signal to them that God has returned. The waiting is ended. He has a little more ahead of him before he can begin to do that. The irony in all this, then, is that the person who do that, who will make their Israel great again by making Israel the window and door of God to the whole world, comes and goes. Israel's king, the world's true God, unbeknownst as a child, helpless, not just weak, and undergoing his own ritual purification with his mother Mary. 
entering into solidarity with the people he came to rescue, to redeem by becoming not just like them, but one of them. As I these days am studying more and more the brain, not my brain, I hope, but the brains of others using people who have the brains to study them, I come to realize, and it's never too late, how much of our inner life is really hardwired into our body. We talk so cavalierly about pulling the body and soul apart, and that is where our faith is. But when you look at how much of the inner life is really built into our physical being, the incarnation takes on a shocking new dimension. I say this because as this child sits there in peace, like all newborns, we are good to remind ourselves that the body is not for Jesus just a balloon, a kind of earth suit, a thin membrane, a skin, which is then filled with an ethereal scent of divinity. No, body and soul, he is a creature, a human being. The writer of the letter to Hebrews has anticipated the neuroscientists a bit. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Not just that he walks on the ground and not one inch above it, but that he thinks and feels like a human being. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. He's sent to be one of us, the one who stands with us to intercede to God and ask for mercy. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We know he's tempted, he's tempted right until his last moments on earth. But we know he does not succumb to temptation. He gets pretty darn close, which is God's model for us. A hair's breadth away, enough to give him a deep empathy for people who are tempted, without which he would be no use to anyone, and we are no use to anyone. But he doesn't succumb. Jesus suffers what is done to him, and his own body will make him suffer just as it makes us all suffer. And one thing bodies do is die, not just all at once, but piece by piece, one at a time. Another source for our empathy and for his. Cradled in a manger, the infant Jesus is now cradled in those same arms, which will receive his body from the embrace of the hardwood of the cross. The human weakness which set the terms for his time on earth also determined the term limits. And then it seems the waiting begins again as Jesus is taken up to the throne. All over again the waiting begins for us. And we're waiting still like they waited in the temple, struggling to make our corner of the planet look like the kingdom which we are still expecting in the end to drop from the sky into our laps. And how quickly we settle for learning the best of the ways of the world to make this world work. And expect that what Jesus has really offered us as the only way to make any world work 
is just too impossible for us to even countenance. In the middle of our growing pains in this world, we would do well to look harder and wait harder and not jump to the conclusion when some political solution or other seems always around the corner, which is going to make this world into the kingdom without Jesus. I have become increasingly fatalistic, and that's good, about the rearrangement of the deck chairs that becomes increasingly a component of our political life. Indeed, as the ship of state sails into the perpetual storm, squall, and gale, always trying to get to harbor and never succeeding, the deck chairs tend to rearrange themselves, and I learn patience and a kind of disengagement. And I know that our nation will survive whatever right now seems to be challenging its very life. No, not survive. We will learn from this and we will grow. We will be stronger at the broken places. For the depths of the goodness of this nation, the charity, compassion, creativity, and downright decency of this people are bred and the bone in the bone and thrive in a time of testing. I can say that as an alien, an alien who has every right to be here, but as I listen to the cries of the hard right, know that I might do well to keep my bags packed. The ship of state will survive hundred-foot waves. Whether the passengers will is another matter, especially when the crew are hanging on for dear life. So I suggest that this is not the time for the church to morph seamlessly into the state. This is the last time not to try to, this is not the time to try to claim our staterooms or to stow away in the hold. This is a time to act prophetically, which means not trying to seize the wheelhouse or the engine room. Jesus didn't bother with the Roman government. He had nothing to do with it. Nor to man the lifeboats and abandon ship. Our call more than ever is to tend the well-being of all those on board to treat their injuries below decks where the poorest and the least will suffer the most and to try to make our way again and again into the rigging to those abandoned crow's nests to keep the radar in repair, the GPS satellites working, and scan the horizon for the signs of the times, for the signs of the Lord's coming and the signs of the Lord's being already in our midst, which no one is looking for now, and proclaim them, making sure we are heard and understood. It's not enough to scream over the wind, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. Which means making sure we are heard and understood, which means probably speaking a little more softly and listening hard. Somehow, those few who went to the temple day after day to fast and pray set the model for our behavior, if we're interested. They waited for God and met him on his terms, not theirs. They learned to wait until they could do God's work in God's way. In prayer, not in fitful or futile action or worse, 
reaction. God is God, but Jesus Christ is Lord of this place right now. If his voice is the first voice we tune out when we seek to seize the implements of political expediency, we are all lost and well lost. That still small voice will be heard in any wind if we quiet our souls. And at the eye of the storm, the sea is calm and the sky is clear. And that inner calm, that inner rest, that inner place of waiting is only a few deep breaths away. When the storm comes up, Christians are called to sail out to sea, not huddle in the harbor. The eye of the storm is our true home here on earth as we wait the return of our God and King. Amen.